Hi, this is Ryan, and I'm one of the hosts of the ED&D podcast. Before I talk about our show, I want to invite you to come to our free professional development. Go to equityanddesign.com forward slash upcoming dash events, and there you'll find workshops to help you promote equity in your schools. There's stuff on data literacy, behavior, and our newest training, MTSS, setting up academic interventions and supports designed and delivered by our very own Dr. Aaron Mahoney. That website again is equityanddesign.com forward slash upcoming dash events. We hope to see you at an upcoming event soon. If you work in schools, it's near certain that you've heard the term positive behavior interventions and supports or PBIS for short. A report from Google Search Trends shows that online searches for PBIS have increased starting at barely anything in 2004 and rising steadily to its peak in recent years. My teammates Marcus, Olivia, and Aaron are experts at this stuff, but if you're like me, you've got a lot of questions about what PBIS means and why we should care about it. So on today's show, we've got nationally recognized PBIS experts, Patty Hirschfeld and Susan Barrett to tell us all about PBIS. What is it? What's a TFI? And what does it have to do with student outcomes and staff wellness? We'll tackle all those questions and more on this episode of the ED&D podcast. Hi, everybody. This is Ryan Estrayato, and I'm one of the co-hosts of the ED&D podcast. Welcome to the episode. I want to welcome my teammates today. Marcus Jackson is here with me. Marcus, how are you? Doing well, Ryan. How you doing? I'm doing fine. And Olivia Rivera is also here. Olivia, how are you doing? Hi, Ryan. Glad to be here. Good. And also, Aaron Mahoney is here with us. Aaron, how are you? Hi, Ryan. I'm doing well. Great. Okay, everybody. I'm really excited about uh, today's show because we have a couple of guests that we've worked with for a while now, and we wanted to have them on the show. And so we're finally making it happen early in 2022. Uh, I'll introduce each of them, and then we're just going to jump right into the conversation uh, because I can't wait to get into this. So um, first guest is Susan Barrett, who's the director for the Center of Social Behavior Support at Old Dominion University and a technical assistance director with the Center on Positive Behavior Interventions and Support. She helps with large-scale implementation of PBIS uh, and works with researchers to evaluate the impact of PBIS on schooling. Susan has published in, uh, in the areas of large-scale adoption for PBIS on mental health in schools. Susan, how are you? I'm well, Ryan. How are you? I'm also well. Welcome to the show. And also with us is Dr. Patty Hirschfeld, who's the co-director of the Center for Social Behavior Support at Old Dominion University. Patty co-chairs the APBS High School Network that supports high schools with using PBIS and MTSS. And she aims to bridge the connections between fellow implementers and researchers. She also has a strong professional focus on equity and student voice. Patty, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? Thank you, Ryan. I'm doing great. Awesome. Okay, you too. Like, we have been waiting for this one uh, for a while, Um, largely because I think we're in, like, year... I always get this wrong. Olivia, you're just going to have to tell me if I get it wrong, but I think we're in, like, year three of... uh, Or in between, like, three and four, getting up close to four, uh, of our... uh, of our relationship with uh, Patty and Susan and, and providing these, uh, and, and these, these providing these trainings. And so um, kind of odd that we, we, we haven't had a chance to do this uh, uh, sooner, but, but glad that we're doing it now. So we're going to jump into that like PBIS um, training and how that's been going and what we've learned about that. But first I want to start where we always start with our guests because um, we want to make sure that our listeners have the full uh, context of your journey in education. And I want to start just by asking, how did you find yourself in the position that you're in now? How did you get started in education? Patty, let's start with you. Well, I actually started as a secondary social studies teacher and um, had that for a couple years and was introduced um, to a co-teaching model and thought it was phenomenal. And so I went into special education and taught um, secondary schools 
15 years. And so truth be told, I taught high school for 14 and that one year in middle school just about wore me out of the field. So um, that's how I initially got into education. Do you want me to talk about how I am where I am now? Yeah. Okay. So I was working on my graduate degree and I was contacted by um, Johns Hopkins University. They were doing one of the early randomized control trials on PBIS. So um, they were focusing on functional behavior assessment and the dream was it would be happening in general education classrooms. And we quickly realized that wasn't the case. But in any case, I joined the Johns Hopkins team and Shepherd Pratt Health System in Maryland. And that was in 2007. I met Susan um, and the work just continued. And so now um, we're with Old Dominion. We opened this center a couple of years ago, uh, affiliated with the National Center. And I think I have one of the most exciting and amazing jobs in the field of education. Susan, how about you? What's what's your journey been like? Yeah, so um, I actually started in the mental health world and was studying to become an individual uh, an individual child therapist, and uh, quickly ran out of money. Um, <laughs> so I thought I'd get my school counseling um, degree and and kind of make my way through the PhD program through working as a school counselor to start with, and then quickly realized that I was geeking out on systems and the way that we um, focused on healthy classroom systems and healthy classroom environments to really help shape the behaviors of individual people. So um, ended up um, taking a couple courses in special ed, fell in love with kids with really Uh, challenging social, emotional, and behavioral needs, fell in love with them. And um, again, just realized that we had to do so much more um, than just working with them on a one-to-one basis. We really had to think about the larger context, the larger environment. I got really lucky in that um, I I had an opportunity to see Dr. George Sagai And and at that time, he was at University of Oregon, and it just changed everything about my journey. I, you know, he was talking about systems. He was talking about all the things that were kind of, in my mind, the the missing link in in what we were doing. So started following um, his work, got really lucky and was hired as a PBIS coordinator for the state of Maryland. And everybody back then thought, PBIS kind of was a something along the line of public broadcasting systems, so nobody really knew what it was. And uh, George was my mentor, and he, um, you know, he's really helped shape um, kind of my role and my journey in in PBIS that I've been doing now for more than twenty years. So it's just been, again, I totally agree with Patty. Right place, right time. Um, and I'm the luckiest person on the planet to, to have the role I have. You both have mentioned this acronym now, PBIS. Uh, and one of the reasons why I wanted to, uh, to host this, this one is because of, uh, of my teammates, I'm the, uh, the PBIS newbie. I'm the one who sort of has the least experience and I'm you know, constantly trying to learn as much as I can from them about it. And so for our listeners who don't know what that is, uh, what's like the, the elevator pitch on PBIS? How would you describe it? Patty, what's your take on that? Well, first of all, PBIS stands for Positive Behavior Intervention and Supports. Um, as Susan talked about the systems piece, PBIS is a systems change effort that focuses on, I would say, shaping adults into understanding that behaviors are a form of communication, right? And what can we do and what systems can we build to support the adults in understanding that and supporting students as opposed to really moving away from all things exclusionary. Um, That's the thimble version of of PBIS. What what do you think drew you to that particular uh, system like we're we're in education and uh and 
in, in education, for better or for worse, there's a lot of frameworks that guide the work that we do. Um, but clearly, you know, when we listen to your stories, we could hear how passionate you are around systems in general, PBIS in particular. Susan, what's a what's something about PBIS that just that, that drew you in? Again, it was the first time I'd ever heard, um, you know, researchers talk about systems change and and move away from. Yeah, yeah, it's very important to help support kids with individualized needs. But to say, you know, we were working so hard at that. And then, you know, we, no matter what kind of um, amazing behavior intervention plan you created or developed with your team, if you have a child going into a classroom that's really chaotic, it's useless. And so for the first time I was hearing people talk about classroom systems and the importance of school environment as a way to help students with disabilities. And I, and Patty's already mentioned, you know, I think we also geeked out on the fact that we knew we were, we were doing science, behavior science within the context of special ed, but we knew that we had so much to offer the general ed population and teachers who weren't getting the kinds of skills and training that we were getting in the special ed uh, pre-service curriculum. So to have this, you know, get translated into a gen ed initiative and something that everybody could benefit from really resonated and really thinking about the health of the workforce, the health of the, of the staff that we were working with. Also, I think we, we geeked out and data, holy cow. We totally geeked out on the data piece. Um, And then I'll just quickly mention that, um, you know, I, I was again in, in kind of the early years we were, we were studying this, right? And and even though you have that um, day-to-day experience where you know you're onto something, we also have been very fortunate to have um, at first Johns Hopkins University with Dr. Phil Leaf and Dr. Catherine Bradshaw come to us and, and want to evaluate this thing. And you know, and now after 20 or more years, we've got this body of research that is simply amazing. And and we know what an impact it's made across the country and really across the world. So it's really, again, just lucky to be a part of that team. I want to, can I uh, piggyback on something Susan said with respect to data? I personally saw George Sugai at the CEC Colorado conference in January of 2000. And he was talking about data and as special educators, we took data, frequency data, latency, you know, various data, but he talked about data from the classroom lens. Like, wow, we're not looking at just one student. We're looking at the, I guess, kind of the health or the dynamics in the classroom and anchoring that in data. And I remember coming back, I was in Florida at the time working for Bambi Lockman, who was later the bureau chief of the state of Florida. And I said, we got to do this. There's data. This was so cool. And that's what really got me fired up about kind of promoting it and getting um, getting my foot in the right door to be able to do this for a living. <laughs> so definitely was the data that won my heart. Yeah. P- Patty, talk a little bit more about just because we've uh, we've brought him up a couple of times now, George Sagai, who is um, influential in the world of education in general, in particular in PBIS, but for our listeners who, who aren't familiar with his work, talk to us about, uh, about what, what he's done for the community and for, and for the field. Oh, gosh, I don't know that we have enough time, but um, George Sugai and Rob Horner, you uh, originally at the University of Oregon, they really kind of breathed life into PBIS and were very strategic and intentional about um, maintaining fidelity and integrity of this work, um, you, you know, and even today, in order to get involved, to get trained, there are steps that schools take, that districts take to stay within the parameters of what we know works in terms of science. And so um, George happened to be later at UConn. And so Susan and I, at one point, were on the East Coast. And I think he was primarily our contact, was certainly mentor, um, and and he just did a phenomenal job, not of marketing PBIS, but of helping people understand the value of investing their time and resources in implementing. So I, I Susan, I know you, there's so much more you can add about George. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, but I think the other thing that I'll just pick up on is the fact that, you know, what Dr. Horner and Dr. Sugai did for us is set in motion this 
this large national community of practice where we all shared our knowledge and resources and products. And so we gave away everything, right? And we share everything. And I think that's just really helped us grow as a community and, and really build an infrastructure across the country. So in a moment, we're going to talk a little bit more about PBIS and, and in particular, uh, what your work has been like with, with our team. But I want, before we do that, I, I want to stay just a little while longer on, on um, your paths to where you got, because I just think there's so much fascinating um, story there. Like our listeners are largely educators, some, uh, you know, agency members, some in leadership, some in the classroom. Um, but one of the things that I'm always curious about, um, about your work is how you, I think of your, where you are now, where, where you started and where you are now as being a, that feels like a story that I don't hear a lot of from educators. You know, I hear a lot of, uh, uh, of a, a more traditional path where you sort of go, you start out maybe in the classroom and then you go into administration. Um, um, certainly, uh, yeah, there are lots of good reasons for that. And I also know that there are, there are some stories that, j- that aren't that. And, uh, and I want to hear a little bit more about what you thought were kind of the moments of the, the drivers of, of how you, you, uh, move towards something that was maybe not, you know, not the kind of the traditional sort of path and pro- and career progression and education. And I want to start by just referencing something, referencing some phraseology you've used a couple of times now, Susan, geeking out. Now you've, you've said this, I think probably the first time I met you, you said it and I immediately thought, oh, I think these are my people. <laughs> and what, what, I, what it says to me, you, you feel free to correct me here if I'm wrong, but what it says to me is that there is a lot about both of your paths that is driven by a desire to to understand a problem better, which is that's a little bit of what that that means to me. Am I off track on that? No, not at all. And I, I think, you know, I think there's a term now that's pretty popular. I think a lot of people are using upstream, right? This prevention and promotion of the skills that everybody needs really to be successful in life. And I think in in that, I think, you know, everybody in education wants lifelong successful adults as a result of working with, with kids, no matter what age we're working with them. So I think, you know, I think, again, I, I, I just got lucky, but also very passionate um, about, about kids and staying focused on what kids need and then being able to adapt and be flexible to the needs of kids and adults you know, throughout the 20 years, there's so much that's happened to us, not only in the country, but in, in, in the space of education and mental health. I mean, look what, where we are now, where everybody's paying attention to mental health. Um, you know, I just think, you know, having kids at the center of everything we do has been really, really helpful. And then having people around you that, that recognize your strengths, you know, for me, it was, um, so many people within the field. My husband was also a special educator and, you know, he and I pushed each other to do things that we may not have done had somebody not recognized or valued what we were bringing to the table. So again, I, I go back to, you know, creating um, spaces for staff to come together and acknowledge each other's strengths and, and lift each other up and take chances and risks, but always have, you know, kid outcomes in mind is the end goal. Patty, what about you? What, can you point to a particular uh, version of geeking out that that pushed you towards your path? Um, yeah, actually, when I when I started the position at Johns Hopkins, I was certain I was going to be this researcher and research only. And um, well, I quickly realized that wasn't my niche. Right. I understood and I'm a good consumer of research, but yet my people are in the school building or in the district office. Right. And so I quickly define myself as the conduit. Right. I'm the conduit between research. Teachers don't have time to read through professional journals and, and, you know, study up on research. Somebody needs to be that conduit for them. And that was sort of the role I self-identified 
Um, and then Andrea Alexander, who used to be the coordinator in Maryland, uh, she approached me uh, and said, De December 10th, I can tell you the date, 2008, she said, we're going to have our Maryland teams together and we want you to talk to the teams about classrooms. And I, I said, okay. And, and then she mentioned there were 500 people in the room. <laughs> And uh, but I did it. I got in there. I was scared to death. And it, it, you know, it just felt right. And so no hard science to why I've landed where I have. But it's I think that, you know, when you say the word path or journey, that's exactly um, what it's been. And really being able to open your mind to it. You know, there's work that that certainly as educators, such a vast skill set that that people can look for and it's it's beyond the want ads i know they're gone but right it's beyond some indeed and whatnot there are so many opportunities to do more and do things differently in education um and just seek them out and holy cow just side note patty was so brilliant during that session with 500 people and she completely rallied after we lost power and had to get out some candles in that room. Um, you were amazing. So, um, so thank you for that, Patty. That sounds like an epic they were turnaround. In of the, the dark, talk. right? Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Um, I just want to say, first of all, thank you, Susan and Patty, for being with us today. And just thank you for being collaborators with us. Our journey with you, um, at least with me as part of the team, EB&D team, started three years ago. We, I was introduced to you by Marcus. It was such an exciting time. We were launching our equity disproportionality and design project. And we invited you to attend our first creative um, design workshop in San Diego and you came down and um, participated and we're there at the beginning when we were starting to brainstorm our mission and the goals. Um, the year following we established the collaboration formalized by offering the um, MTSS PBIS professional development series. We started with cohort one and now next month in February, we're actually going to be offering cohort four. So it's been a great journey. Um, tell us a little bit about the focus of this professional development series. And we're hoping to release this podcast to actually encourage more participants to participate. So what, why should schools or district teams consider participating in this, in this series? Thank you, Olivia. It has been amazing to work with this team. You guys um, share the passion I think we do around um, focusing on student outcomes and making sure that every child is successful inside our communities. And um, you also are a lot of fun. So we, we and we geek out on, on kind of the same things, right? The, the data piece. Um, I think in large part, there's so much stress um, right now falling on the shoulders of educators. And we know that this opportunity that the syndemic has, has kind of carved out for us is to, to be able to redesign the system, but it can't really fall on individual educators to make that happen. And when our educators are stressed, it really impacts all facets of education, including our responses to behavioral issues that are occurring in the classroom. And so I think that you know, we've developed in that cohort series a way to um, to talk about kind of all the, the different aspects of equity. Um, we bring district and school teams together to have time to go through and process, you know, what's working really well for you right now? What, you know, what do you need? And then we we take them through a fidelity tool that really helps them kind of assess and fine tune um, the, the, all the wonderful things that they're doing, but also streamline what they're doing, right? So it, it gives us a lot of time. We do it in a virtual context. So um, so I, I think we've been able to adapt um, from in-person to a virtual context pretty well. I'm feeling very confident about, um, about the feedback we've gotten so far from, from the other cohorts. But again, if, if you are a leader or an educator struggling with... Um, with burnout and, and stress in the education field, if you're um, worried about the way forward, I, I think we have a lot to offer um, in these in these trainings. And, and certainly we've got an amazing team that um, 
with a, with a lot of ongoing support that's also available after the training is over. So thank you, Susan. Patty, anything else you'd like to add? Well, I also appreciate the way the, the training's designed. And so we have those kind of two heavy days of content to get that out there, but then offering teams an opportunity to be part of a learning community, um, to collaborate, and, and then providing individualized support through office hours. I, I really appreciate that model. And we kind of dabbled in it at first, but I think as we've gone through the multiple cohorts, it seems to be a really good model that allows us to individualize or differentiate because we've had teams on who were well on their way and have been doing PBIS, MTSS for a very long time. And their response was, wow, this validates, this helps us see the holes in our work. Um, And then we've got folks who didn't know what PBIS stood for when they entered our our training. And so I think the model that we've kind of created together, all of us, um, allows for teams to be um, teams to benefit regardless of where they are. I agree. Awesome. And it's been a great experience for those districts and schools who have participated in the previous cohorts, just for us to listen to the practitioners and they have amazing stories of what they've been able to accomplish through the pandemic prior and now coming back to schools. And then, um, also just they encourage one another, they validate each other. So it's great to see that camaraderie that develops, um, as we have the more in-depth discussions. Yeah. And it kind of goes to the, that topic of staff wellness also, which you brought up, Susan, you know, it's, it's interesting because the, uh, podcast episode before this one, uh, listeners can can um, subscribe and listen to that one also, was with Mara Madrigal-Weiss and Heather Nemore, who were at the San Diego County Office of Education. And one of the things that came up a bunch of times there was uh, also the, the topic of mental health and wellness for staff. Um, and I think it's a really interesting topic because in a way, I understand why folks would would think of like, well, you got wellness for staff, and then you got wellness for students, and then maybe you got wellness in the community. But really, I, I feel like what is coming up as a theme um, in that last conversation, and then also through your work, is the, the idea that those are actually interconnected, that wellness for staff is important from a human point of view, but also from an instructional point of view for the benefit of the students. And I was just wondering if you could just talk more to that. Uh, Susan, let's go to you on that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think one of the things we know about stress in our bodies is that um, when we are in um, long-term stress, it starts to really impact our physical health. And when that's impacted, we can't show up as our best selves and be caregivers to the kids that we're serving each and every day. And so they're absolutely intertwined. Um, But again, you know, (laughs) there's a lot of talk about self-care and that only takes us so far, right? Yeah, we have personal responsibility to take care of ourselves, sleep right, eat right, um, maybe use some mindfulness activities, get out and exercise, et cetera, et cetera but we're talking about so much more. So we we talk a lot about having a two-pronged approach, right? Yes, take care of yourselves, make sure you're showing up for your best self, but how do we redesign the organization level to be able to take some stuff off our plate, right? We're so overwhelmed with all the things we're being asked to do. We're asking teachers to lean into social emotional Uh, learning and teaching that right alongside academics. Well, we haven't prepared our teachers to do that. How do we, if we ask our teachers to do something, we have to give them adequate coaching. And and then that'll translate into being able to be able to support the students. So it's all really interconnected. And again, I I think, um, I think the next iteration of PDIS is doing a really good job of harnessing that, mental health component, the social emotional behavior component, using that same framework, using the core features to guide the work, but including many more people around the table to do this. Patty, what about you? What's uh, what's your take on the relationship between staff wellness and student wellness? Um, I think Susan captured the wellness piece really nicely. I, I think about the climate in a school building whereby we coach we teach students, when you don't understand something, ask for help. 
we do it intentionally. We have formulas, what ask three, then me, I, I can't remember, right? We are have, um, we're very intentional about making sure students ask for help. I'm not as certain that we create a climate in schools where teachers can ask for help and, and be risk-free. You can ask for help if you don't understand the new reading curriculum. Your instructional coach will come in and support the teacher. But can a teacher say, I have no clue how to manage this classroom. It's not going well for me. Can someone help me? And that's a whole different conversation. You know, those are sometimes the conversations in the, in the staff lounge that you hear, well, she can't manage that classroom, but that's a skill set. And so I think maybe kind of, kind of aligned with wellness is have we created a climate in our school building where teachers can feel safe asking for help? I think that's a piece that we can really focus on. And that same, that same thing is true for district or school leaders to be able to turn to the district and say, hey, I need some help right now. Um, you know, how do we create that level of vulnerability and trust across the cascade of implementation to make sure that, you know, we've never, we've never been in this space before with a magnitude of need and we're being overwhelmed by not only the need, but by the political nature of, of SEL and equity. And so we all need each other in order to navigate this, this kind of new frontier we find ourselves on. And we have to open up that dialogue and vulnerability to say, I just don't know how to do this. And, and how do we join together as a team and collectively figure out the solution and customize it to fit the unique needs and strengths of the community and the people we're serving? You know, Ryan, you said this was about story. So I'll, and you can choose to edit this if you want. But when I was teaching at Johns Hopkins a number of years ago, um, I kind of took the classes that were underpopulated, if you will, and because I was allowed to do some creative scheduling. So when there were graduate classes that didn't quite make the full capacity anyway, they asked me, will you teach this class on IEP development for students with severe and profound needs? And I didn't have the word no in my vocabulary just yet. I've got it now. Right. And I said, yes. And I know nothing about that population of students, their needs, what an IEP should look like and what it should represent. And about, I don't know, a month into the course, I knew I was not doing well. But what did I do? I just kept plugging away. Right. And then month two, I got called to the dean's office. Students are not happy with the class. And I said, I, I, I get it. I don't, I'm not really super fluent with this work. I should have said no. And the dean, the dean of the School of Education for Johns Hopkins said to me, Patty, why didn't you ask for help? Right. And that was a pivotal moment for me professionally. Like, yeah, we don't create that space for educators, for leaders in the same way that we really, really push that for our students. I just wanted to add on to what you were saying, Patty, uh, as well as you, Susan, um, one of the things, too, that, that we love about your work is that there's a high emphasis on student voice and then also um, the component of incorporating that staff wellness piece that's tied in. But you bring much bigger than just a California perspective. And I think that um, having the experience of working with schools from um, uh, Northwest or back East or Midwest or East Coast or down South, it really opens up that door for educators to realize this is not a California problem. This is something that we're utilizing or seen across the nation. And I think that gives it a powerful impact. And um, going back to PBIS, which you talked about earlier, uh, Susan, is that sense of community, you know, and we've all worked in schools. We know that there are kids, there are students out there that just don't feel connected to the school structure. And so uh, Susan, when you mentioned um, working with systems to help shape behavior, we all know that that's what, what really it's about sometimes because if we can have those individuals uh, see a different uh, uh, way of looking at things through a structured system, it helps provide support for the teachers, particularly the ones that want to help. They just don't know how to help. But within that structured system, it gives them a, a, a lot more confidence to do the work that they want to do. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I think the missing link in a lot of our pre-service work is implementation science and public health. Right. I mean, I think if we are going to respond to the, the level of need out there, we have to be open to reorganizing the way the way we design our system forever. You know, it wasn't working for so many of our kids before 
the syndemic. And I say syndemic, that's, that might be a new word for folks. Um, but, uh, you know, I think that the, it, it just kind of, it's not just the pandemic, right? The pandemic plus social injustice, plus climate change, plus, plus, plus all these things um, really have combined in one large kind of syndemic um, that, that I think we're dealing with. And, and I think we, we've got to, as much as we want to kind of go back to the way things were, I'm hoping we never, ever do. Because again, it wasn't working for so many of us. And we're, and we're watching our workforce get depleted right now. And we were, you know, we were having shortages before, um, you know, the pandemic. We were having um, a workforce issue before. And, and now that's just, you know, that's just grown. And so I, we've got to do something drastically different if, if we're going to um, attract and, and retain a, a our workforce. And we, we want to credit Gloria Letts and Billings for that term syndemic. I think. Yes. Thank you. I, I was blanking on her name and I was, <laughs> yes. I want to make sure she, she uh, gets a shout out for that great term. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I want to stick to the topic of evolving with the times. I understand that y'all are, are participating in a really big project, which is the revision of the tiered fidelity inventory or, or the acronym is, uh, is TFI. And so I've got a two part question for you. The first is, uh, for folks who are just getting familiar with PBIS, uh, what is the tiered fidelity inventory? And then the second question is, um, what about it is not working anymore that requires some revision. So, uh, Patty, let's, uh, let's start with you on that. What's, uh, maybe you could start just telling us what the tiered fidelity inventory is. Sure. I can start with that. And then Susan can pick up on the, the revision piece. The tiered fidelity inventory is like, it sounds, it's a fidelity tool that schools use to kind of self-assess and then at some point get external eyes on the initiative, on the efforts that are being carried out. There are 15 items on the TFI that represent three domains. So you have teams, you have features that support implementation, and then you have the evaluation piece. And um, I know Susan and I and our colleagues um, are committed to actually using the TFI as a training structure, like teach the test. Um, because the test, it's a validated tool, and the features on there are um, anchored in science. We know this, this, and this needs to happen in order for this P for PBIS to be carried out um, effectively. And when we talked earlier about data, I think many initiatives, many programs, many projects track student data and outcome data. I think what is unique to PBIS and the center itself is the focus on fidelity. It's not enough to say we're doing something. We need to explore and evaluate whether or not we're actually providing what we say we're going to provide. And so it's not just student outcome focused or even school level outcome focused. It's focused um, on the fidelity and what are the adults doing. And so I think that's two prong in terms of a data piece. Susan, what's uh, what's what was the driving sort of what are the driving factors that led to folks saying hmm, I think I think it's time to revise it yeah, so I, I mentioned earlier that PBIS is iterative right it, we're always learning and growing from the schools that we work with across the country and one of the things that we are quickly recognizing is the need to pull in in a more deliberate way items that we've studied around equity and items that we've studied around social emotional, um, health. And so we uh, have a team that has um, offered a new iteration of the tiered fidelity inventory that is including items related to equity and items related to social, emotional, and behavioral health. Uh, we are in the process of validating it. And so, I, I, again, you know, I think it's just one of the hallmarks of PBIS and what we offer the larger education community where I think our, our center has led the way on focusing on fidelity, like Patty just mentioned, and never assigning blame to students for not succeeding when we're not holding ourselves accountable for high fidelity implementation of evidence-based practices. And again, I, you know, I think one of the, the missing pieces, um, at least in my personal pre-service background was 
being a, a good consumer of evidence-based strategies and being really selective about what we do for the kids that we're working with. And there's just too much bunk out there, right? We're, we're, our hearts are big and we're, we want, we want to fix things, but in doing so we've, we've inadvertently put too much on our plates. And so it's really impossible to do anything well. And what I appreciate about this tool is that it's a diverse team that's recognizing what we need to do and translating that self-assessment into action, right? What are we going to do differently moving forward? How are we going to evaluate the effectiveness? And we're not meeting that standard. Let's go back and reassess and make sure that we are reaching that high quality. And, and it's all based on science. We've got too many tools running around without the psychometric properties to back it up. Um, so again, how do we become better consumers? And then how do we make sure we're investing in the right things at the right time and that are feasible and realistic enough to be able to pull off so our students actually get are successful? I'm just kind of curious, and this goes along a little bit to what you both were just sharing in terms of the TFI and hopefully what that does, right, is set up schools to be even more successful in providing those supports and structures and systems for for students to um, ultimately be able to understand what is expected to be successful consumers of learning because they're not having to worry about some of those other things. And I'm just kind of curious though, we've talked a lot about just system change that PBIS supports. What is ultimately when you see a school that has implemented PBIS with Fidelity and there are these rock star schools, what is that ultimate impact on students? Maybe that there's like a story that you have or something, but I mean, when we get back to like, because we, I know that our team all knows what this can do for students, but I just love to hear maybe from you all what you've seen those greatest impacts on students have been um, with, with this work or through this work. I can start um, because thankfully from the very beginning, we've partnered with universities such as Johns Hopkins, University of Oregon, Connecticut, Florida, Missouri, a lot of different university partners we can say with a good deal of confidence because of rigorous research that the impact it has on students is really multi, multi-faceted. So certainly students experience academic gains. Um, students come to a building where they feel safer, which we know safety is critical to learning. Like if you're not feeling safe, your ability to learn or maximize your learning outcomes is limited. Um the climate and the feel of the building, students report having more of a kind of a collegial, um, they don't use that word, but uh, a collegial experience. I think it's also important to notice that the adults, there's a lot of data around the difference, um, the different experience adults have, teachers have in a building that's implementing PBIS with Fidelity. And that includes, and I think this is so important, this increased sense of teacher efficacy. In other words, yeah, this this student is dealing with this outside of, you know, out of school. How am I ever going to get through to him? But it or her, but in a in a school where PBIS is implemented well, we hear teachers having a greater sense of efficacy saying, "Yeah, that is happening and I can do my job and educate this young person." And I think that's a really profound uh, finding that came out of a few of the research studies. And so, you know, adults feeling more efficacy efficacious is certainly going to have a positive impact on student success. Yeah, I want to go to to, to Susan on this uh, next question, continuing on with the TFI. I know from the stories that Marcus and Olivia share with me that um, as powerful as the TFI is, there, there can be some discomfort with using it, particularly if you're just getting started. Um, there's just some sort of I don't know if it's like a psychological kind of barrier to, you know, looking at how the work is going. And Susan, I want to know, what would your advice be for somebody who's like, oh, I know I'm supposed to fill this this data collection thing out, but I'm just getting started and I just want to uh, wait till it's a little bit better before I before I measure it. What, what would you say to somebody who's, who's feeling like that? Yeah, I mean, it, it could be a daunting task to look at that measure and think, holy cow, that's a lot of work. And we're already overwhelmed with with kind of putting fires out. So how 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 do we 
how do we even start? And, and what I like about it is that, um, you know, Patty mentioned that we train off of the measure, right? So, you know, we introduce it one thing at a time and we, we get a lot of um, discussion and dialogue around acknowledging that, wow, we've got a lot of things that we're already doing around this area. It just might not be consistently delivered across the classroom, but there are things that we, we can do. So I think in our training, we're always trying to point out the strengths of the system and how folks understand that they already have, they're already doing a lot. It's just not as coordinated as it, as it could be. And this will help them get the consistency across classroom teachers, get the consistency across grade levels, and also the flexibility to customize it to fit the different levels within, within a school building or the different personality of the teacher within the con context of the classroom. Um, we always say, you know, start small, smart, start with one or two things that seem feasible and realistic, test the waters, um, and then, you know, track some, some data and then shed a light on, wow, when we, when we greet students at the door, here's what we're able to do. We actually increase instructional time. Um, and those small moments turn into bigger, bigger things. And then all of a sudden you're hooked and you're, you know, pretty soon you're, you know, you've got tier one down and then, you know, you're moving on to advanced tiers. And so it, it's a long-term process. I'm not going to lie. It is, it is a lot of work because we are talking about changing systems. We're talking about changing adult behavior and that can be really challenging. But the, it is encouraging that, you know, the way you explain it, it almost made me think that, you know, if you can get past the uh, initial discomfort, like what is around the corner is, is, uh, is, is full engulfing into the geek out of this whole work, which is like, whoa, it's possible to understand the complexity on a level that is not only good for kids, but almost, I don't know quite how to like put this, but it almost feels like it's just satisfying as a professional to be able to see like, oh, there's a way to, to understand why this doesn't work a little bit better and then to act on that. And uh, there's something about that that's so inspiring, I think. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, one of the best things that we did really early on in the work back in Maryland, Patty and I visited tons of schools, right? We were always in schools. And, and to be able to go into a school that's, that has reached fidelity of implementation and see the difference it makes, there's nothing like it. So, you know, to, to your point about how it can seem really daunting, if you can take a field trip to a school nearby that you know is doing it with fidelity and actually see it happening, I, I, there's no way you can walk away and say, we, you know, no, I'm not going to do that because it, it does make a, a remarkable impact on, on people's lives and, and the environment and the day-to-day -day situations they find themselves in. And, you okay. know, Ryan, I, one of the intimidating, or I, I think that's not the word you used, uncomfortable um, awareness, I always kind of, kind of tongue in cheek, but you know, the scoring criteria on the TFI is a zero, one, and two. So I always pre-correct educators when in training and say, remember a zero is not an F, right? <laughs> right? Because we're programmed to think a zero is an F, Yes, but a zero just means this isn't in place yet. And, and so just really, uh, really simplifying and helping folks understand the journey, right? It's, it's not a one and done. It's not going to be done in a year likely, but I can say with a fair amount of certainty, schools who were at Fidelity before the pandemic, whether or not they were remote or still face-to-face, -face, I, I don't know that I heard any school say, wow, what a bummer we have PBIS. It was something they could lean on so heavily. And, and there are schools that who have been going through training during the pandemic, both remote instruction and face-to-face. And it's been hard. And I take my hat off to those folks, those schools who have stayed with it. And they're they're also of this awareness that, dang, I wish we had this in place. This this makes things so much easier, so much more systematic. And, and so it's been interesting to track and follow how schools who are implementing and who are wanting to be implementing with Fidelity, um, what that's looked like uh, during these last few years. Just like you just mentioned, since the pandemic, we've been we've been receiving many calls uh, from districts who either started the PBIS uh, a while ago, stopped, but wanted to re um, basically wanted to um, to establish their PBIS all over again. We've been receiving more calls. In fact, I had one yesterday 
from um, someone in one of our smaller rural districts who just basically wanted to get uh, the ball rolling again for PBIS because they, they had stopped or they had done PBIS, but not with fidelity. And so he wanted to get the ball rolling again from the district level. So we've been see, seeing an increase since the pandemic or the syndemic. One of the earlier conversations that we had on the podcast was with Mike Lombardo and, and Luke Anderson. And one of the questions that we had for them was, what's it going to be like? This was way back, you know, over a year ago now, I think. What's it going to be like opening, reopening schools um, after the pandemic and trying to do PBIS? And their answer was, it's hard to imagining, it's hard to imagine reopening schools without PBIS or some, some system like it. But like, but I think it really kind of speaks to that point, which is maybe, you know, generally speaking, uh, what's needed now more than ever is a systematized, you know, disciplined approach to what it is that we all kind of want in our hearts for kids, right? Like the execution of us be, be like attached to a, a, uh, a like routinized sort of, you know, approach just because, you know, with the pandemic, we've just, everything has just been turned upside down and what we relied on in the past to guide, to guide our way is just different now. If yeah, I could just please. brag about our center please. and the team, yeah. uh, um, you know, our center is made up of, of researchers and practitioners from all over the country. And I think one of the things I'm really proud of is our ability to, to have um, developed so many resources in real time. Um, so on our national website on pbis.org, we've got a return to school plan and we've adapted so much of what we've done to meet the current need. And so I just wanted to give a shout out to our colleagues around the country because it's, it's really kind of uh, amazing um, how they, they've kind of stepped up to the plate. Yeah, well, and we'll include that um, that. Uh, link in, in the show notes also so that people people can, yeah. can get and, it. Yeah, and it is a daunting task, right? So we are actually anchoring the work on phases of crisis recovery. Um, and so that's a really good way to kind of say, what do we need? You know, where are we in this phase of recovery? What do we need to focus on? And let's, let's just do one or two things really well because we can't afford um, to, to, to go back to being overwhelmed. And I think that's really helped kind of set the pace for, for moving forward. So we've covered a lot of ground a lot of fascinating conversation, and I want to end with two questions. One really, really huge question. I'm going to apologize in advance for how big that is and how little time we have to answer. And then one more casual and fun. So the first big one, uh, something that we ask uh, almost all of our guests, how do you, well, let me ask you this way. What do you think needs to change in education in the next say three years what 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 is your hope for what you see different in education in the next three years patty let's let's start with you um so i have a this huge professional passion for student voice youth voice and i think that as the more i talk with schools about engaging young people and letting them share their lived experiences and their understandings of what would make school a better place, the more I realized that's not a concept that all adults are have considered, let's say it like that, right? And, and in some cases, there are adults who just don't, um, and this comes from the mouth of students. This is, you know, where uh, one young, young person who we had on, um, on a webinar said, administrators don't take seriously what information the students have to offer about their school experience. And the administrators who do are those buildings where you see students much more engaged. And every conversation I have with, with students in different schools and places that I visited, it's that same theme. We need to be heard. We do know what we're talking about. This is our experience. I worked with students earlier in the week and said, you know, you're the consumer, right? In a school, the students are the consumer. This is for them. And so I think that by... Um, allowing students to get more involved with all things school, not just, if you know, the prom or what have you, but allowing students to authentically be involved in decision making, get, get students engaged with your school level data, um, really engaging their voices. I think that that um, can just have a remarkable impact on changes in schools. 
And by that, by the changes, I mean, so that schools are equipped to better serve all students, not just the students who are in student government or the students who have straight A's, right? Or athletes, but really listening to all the students. Susan, what about you? Next three years, what do you hope changes? Again, you know, Patty uh, elevated youth youth voice and empowering youth to 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 kind of co-design the way forward. I, I think the same is true for empowering our educators, listening and leaning into what our educators need and want, um, and 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 our families and our community. You know, I think conducting listening tours and and empathy interviews and. And, and, and just kind of following their lead. I mean, I think there's so many great things happening and it will be important to harness those good things, but we have a lot to change about our system. And, if, and, and schools can't do this alone. So we definitely need our other child serving organizations within our communities to kind of come together and coalesce around um, a common way of work. And I think that, um, you know, the, the, the core features that, that PBIS offers could be, that that roadmap that that might lead to a fully integrated comprehensive system and then i'll just make one other comment about decreasing the stigma of mental health i think again in partnership with our communities our families and our youth we've got to talk about mental health in a way that um where everybody takes ownership over that and and understands what that means and what that looks like and, and maybe it starts with the academic dimensions of health. And, you know, what does it look like to have a healthy classroom? What does it look like to have a healthy school community? Um, and so, yeah, there's, there's a lot of work to do. But, you know, um, in the prevention science and the public health model, I mean, they've laid out the path forward. I, I think it's just up to us to, to kind of follow that lead. Okay, so... We've come to the end of our conversation. We always try to end on a little bit of a lighter note, uh, something fun. And the uh, question that we've prepared for you is a new one that we've been uh, trying out. And that question is, what is one non-work-related book that you've been reading? Uh, and I know how busy you both are. If, if you haven't had a chance to do that, what is one that you want to read? So, uh, Susan, let's stay with you on this. Like, what's what's one non-work book that you've been reading? Oh, so I love historical fiction. Love, love, love it. And I um, just finished um, The Water Dancer by uh, Ta-Nehisi uh, Coates. Yeah. And um, it was fantastic. I highly recommend it. Um, but, yeah, historical fiction is my, is my passion. That's right. Yeah, I don't think I've ever read, like, a... He's written, uh, like comic books and stuff like that. And I've never read like his fiction work. So I, yeah. I'd, I'd be excited to check. That it's out. fantastic. Highly yeah. recommend it. Yeah. Patty, what about you? Um, I've, I've been delving into a number of publications, Brene Brown and Tawana Burke have been working on and just some of the self-help keep, you know, keep my own head above water. Um, hopefully sharing. There's also a book that I wouldn't say it's, it, it it's heavy. It's called Troublemakers and it's oh. kind of work related. Um, but it, the authors do a really good job with a couple of case studies around. Um, it's about students of color and their experience and how they've been excluded and and really misunderstood. And it's a it's a pretty good read. It's not light and cheery for sure. It's very it's very troubling. Um, but the, the book's called Troublemakers. And I think it gives us a good understanding from a a case-by-case case sort of lens as opposed to reading big data stories, right? These are personal. So it's not really work-related, but kind of. I mean, uh, yeah, one of the things I've noticed is when you love what you do, the 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 the, the line between work and non-work-related reading is fairly, fairly blurred, so uh, understandable. Yeah, do you like how I tried to justify that? Oh, yeah, I, in my eyes, you didn't have to. It's fine. <laughs> Olivia, I saw yourself go off mute. Did you, did you want to jump in? No, I just want to say so awesome to be able to have this conversation with both of you. I always, um, I always learn so much. Like I didn't know the story at the beginning of your story, so that was awesome to learn today. Oh, it's it's so much fun to work with you all. So thank you so much for for having us. We we enjoyed this conversation too. Yeah. Oh, you're very welcome, and uh, and we'd love to have you back if 
if y'all have the, the, the time to, to do that in, in the future. I think our conversations are, are really fun. They're honest. Uh, and also, they require more than just one podcast episode. So I think uh, it, would, it would be great, great to have you, have you come back. Susan and Patty, thank you so much for your time. Your work is so important to kids. It's so important to staff. I think you're doing things that we know when our hearts need to be done, but we don't always have the methods and the language to describe it. And so to hear you talk about it, I just think is, is so powerful. So thank you so much for coming here. And, and, and we hope that, that you can come back again. Thanks for listening to the episode. We want to thank the California Department of Education and the California Collaborative for Educational Excellence for awarding the SELPA content lead grants to us and our project partners. The ED&D podcast is funded through something called the Content Lead Grant that empowers us to share this kind of work with educators and with a broad audience across the state of California. And thank you to you, our listeners, for sharing this conversation with us. Join us on our next episode where we continue the journey of interviewing professionals who possess a passion for building equitable educational services for all students. See you next time.